0: Welcome to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm
1: Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDormand. This episode, we're talking about Thomas Ligotti's story, The Frolic, which was originally published in the collection Songs of a Dead Dreamer in 1985.
0: Glenn, I don't I don't know about you, but I am really excited to discuss this story and maybe just Thomas Ligotti in, in general. I really enjoyed The Frolic. Uh, I, I enjoyed it as a bit of horror writing, as a bit of um, uh, what it belongs to in its genre, in the terms of the '70s and '80s pushback to uh, certain strains of American fiction. And I hope, throughout the story, you know, we chatted about this story a little bit. I hope I can convince you uh, that you should like it more than perhaps.
1: You do. I did actually like this story quite a bit, and I'm I'm looking forward to digging into it. This is actually the first Legati that I've ever read. Even though you and I work in this genre, we write in this genre. This is just I've just never read Legati before. I only became aware of him because of his connection with the HBO series True Detective, uh, which to me really seemed like an adaptation of a Robert W. Chambers story, which of course we'll be covering some of uh, in future episodes of Elder Sign. So I was very excited to to get a taste of Legati here. This story was pretty good, I think, and must surely be an indication of better things to come as he matures as a writer, much like most of the writers that we're covering in this podcast.
0: Yeah, I did want to say that the uh, kind of Legati's main influence in True Detective season one was uh, through the character Rust Cole, who was played by Matthew McConaughey. And a lot of the philosophy that Rust Cole espouses, uh, Nick uh, Pizzolato, the writer, credits with Ligotti's work called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which is this work of philosophy that's about antinatalism like people just shouldn't have been born, humanity's a mistake, all this crazy stuff. He has a really dark view on the universe. And and one thing I hope we get to discuss uh, when we get to the end of the story is what Ligotti's contribution is to to Cosmic Car, what step he's taking it in, what direction he's going in. Um, But I do think that this is a good introduction to his storytelling as, as we'll get, at least in terms of a coherent plot. So Glenn, why don't you take us through the recap?
1: All right, let's get into it. Dr. David Monk, his wife, Leslie, and their daughter, Norline have recently moved to the isolated town of Nolgate. They live in an affluent part of town, a neighborhood that is quiet both day and night. Leslie Monk doesn't much care for it. The persistent quiet makes her fidgety, and there's just too much lethargy here. And Dr. Monk, despite his dedication to his new job, has been exhibiting signs of disenchantment.
0: Here we have an almost Rockwellian Picture of a perfect suburban family. We have a husband and wife uh, with one child who is appropriately appropriately mischievous. We have that she might illicitly be watching her brand new TV upstairs, which is a sign of affluence. Uh, the child has their own TV. We're told that this is a beautiful home in a beautiful part of town, but that this town is also the site of a state prison, which I think is um, showing us that there is something wrong with the beauty. There is something just beyond and outside the reach of the beauty that is always present in the mind of this community. The husband has a new job. The wife is very supportive. As we'll see, she's a picture of a perfect housewife. She's maybe more of a psychologist than her husband is. And it's just a great way to set up this picture of happy suburban life. And I do want to note that Dr. Monk's name is spelled M-U-N-C-K, though it is a homonym as well for monk, like a monk.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be important to understanding his character. Well, as you say, Brandon, we get a sort of Rockwellian picture of this family, but Really, even as we get into the second descriptive paragraph here, it's clear that something is not right. Their family dinner is quiet, and following that dinner, Dr. Monk and Leslie sit quietly again in their living room, reading, or at least hiding behind, a magazine and a newspaper. Leslie hates this silence, and eventually she breaks it, but Dr. Monk does not want to talk about his day. He says he is severely doubting everything. Leslie manages to get him to engage with her just enough that she can offer to make some drinks, which he is excited about, and she refuses to let her husband stew in his own self-doubt. Through their conversation, we learn that David is a psychologist at the Nolgate Prison, this, this prison that you mentioned, Brandon, and this is the job for which they have recently moved here. But David is angry. He thinks that it was foolish to move here and foolish to take this job. He says that he'd wanted to do something saintly, and here's where the name Monk might be important. He'd wanted to do something more meaningful than treating the urban neuroses at his previous job in some big city somewhere. In short, he'd wanted an impossible and thankless job, and it's turned out to be more impossible and more thankless than he'd imagined. And David swore that he wouldn't become jaded, but the job now is horrifying him, The prisoners don't care about their psychiatric treatment, and much more urgently, they are violent, even beating up one of the other doctors last week. And David hasn't been there long, but already he has lost compassion for the prisoners, who, he says, can all rot in that hellhole.
0: In this section as well, we really see that both David and Leslie have, at least on the surface, some desire to be seen as self-sacrificing. Uh, As you said, Glenn, David refers to his task as this saintly mission. And I think that is something he says in earnest, in earnest. And um, Leslie congratulates herself for the way she's putting David's self-esteem above her own needs. And also their argument here begins very rationally. They are very self-reflective in their interaction with each other. They are your classic kind of upper middle class white couple who just won't argue with each other because they shouldn't have to because they're rational people, right? There shouldn't be any conflict they can't resolve rationally. David says in response to Leslie being snide to him, he says, I deserved it. I'm just projecting my anger onto you. So there's all that going on with these characters. And I think even through this description, though they're speaking in earnest, there's something unsettling about this picture of them as a couple. It's not dark. It's just there is some real distance between them. And I think distance, uh, either by time or geography, is a big part of this story of what they're trying to keep away. They're living a life that is not welcoming to the world outside of their home. The home is described as a place that has serenity. It is described as a haven. And all of that is in this section as well. So there's just a lot going on here uh, that Ligotti's doing to give us a sense of um, the, the the striving of this couple to create a place where no harm can reach them.
1: Again, I think it's important to to note here that one of the key things that we're seeing in this household one is that there's this barrier. Everyone has a, a barrier. Uh, Leslie and Doctor Monk are both hiding behind physical objects: a newspaper, a magazine they have given their daughter a television so that she can just stay in her room and have amusement and not necessarily engage with the rest of the family. And even this conversation that Leslie and Dr. Monk, Leslie and David are about to have with each other is mitigated only because Dr. Monk wants a drink, because he needs a drink, in fact, in order to stop thinking about how miserable he feels. Well, thinking about the prisoners and thinking about how he's already lost compassion for these prisoners leads Dr. Monk to think of the last patient that he saw that afternoon, who he describes as a standout example of the pernicious monstrosity of the prison. That's a a great line there. This prisoner was arrested and convicted as a John Doe. He won't tell anyone his name or any other biographical information. And Dr. Monk describes him as absolute madness paired with a sharp cunning. Because he hasn't been identified, he can't be put in the general population. And so he lives in the psychiatric wing of the hospital. And Dr. Monk's primary job right now is to get John Doe to reveal his name. But so far, all he will say is that he has plenty of names, more than a thousand of them. And here we learn that John Doe was convicted of abducting and murdering children. This is the real grotesque horror that provides the, that provides the weird element of this, of this story. John Doe was caught in a sting operation, though in their sessions, he has told Dr. Monk that he knew he was being watched, and he wanted to be caught and put in prison. Moreover, John Doe doesn't seem to fully comprehend his situation. He doesn't admit that he murdered children. Instead, he calls what he did frolicking. And he thinks of this time in prison as a holiday, as a vacation. Uh, indeed, he's he's resentful that he has to be isolated from the other prisoners because he wants to be able to go and play with them. And finally, John Doe doesn't seem to understand the nature of the prison. He He really thinks that This is like a hotel that he can leave whenever he wants. And when Dr. Monk says this, Leslie expresses her heavy fear that John Doe or someone like him might escape from the prison. And Dr. Monk assures her that, of course, this is not possible. Or, well, even if a prisoner did escape, they usually just try to flee and they're almost always caught within a few hours. None of this, of course, is actually reassuring in any way. And I think we have to envision here that they've had this conversation several times before he actually took the job and before they moved. And that I think he is sounding less reassuring now than he has in previous iterations of this.
0: Yeah, I think it's really clear that um, Leslie's real fear is, is, is actually based on on the uh, thinness, the immateriality of the barrier between them and the prison, her suspicion that evil might not just be out there. Uh, Everything in the way that David describes this character, John Doe, he calls him chaos himself. He describes the place where he was caught. It's really elsewhere. It's an elementary school. It's, It's far from there. There's so much work being done to Have this couple isolated in their home, and that is meant to make them be safe. But Leslie, her fear is that this horde of fiends will escape from the prison, which has papery walls. What I'm suggesting is that the fear that's creeping in is that these boundaries are not as strong as they think they are, and that their proximity to even the place where they can see the boundaries is enough to disenchant is the word used in the story, but really disintegrate their sense of safety in the
1: world. Well, and in the next scene, that happens viscerally in a a physical way when suddenly a noise disturbs Dr. Monk. It's interesting here to note that Leslie doesn't seem to have heard this noise, but nonetheless, Dr. Monk wants to go check on Norleen. He now needs a reassurance of his own. He goes upstairs, and he finds that their daughter is in her room, asleep, with her arm around a stuffed Bambi. And Dr. Monk sees that the bedroom window is slightly open, and while this is not unusual for this time of year, he's been unnerved enough that he decides to go ahead and close it anyway. Well, back downstairs, Leslie wants to know more about John Doe, and here Dr. Monk launches into a long narrative of the conversation that he'd had with the prisoner that afternoon. In this narrative, we learn some interesting stuff about John Doe. He thinks that words are funny, and he has some trouble with their meaning. Moreover, he says, I like all the languages you have. In response to the question, where were you born, John Doe replies, which time? And all of this is revealed to Dr. Monk as John Doe switches between different voices and different accents and... Dr. Monk actually suspects that John Doe might suffer from multiple personality disorder at this point. During the account of his day, Dr. Monk makes up his mind to quit the prison and to relocate the family. And of course, Leslie is thrilled at this. And now she wants to give her husband a present that she has waiting for him. It's a piece of art that she bought from the shop at the prison, meaning, of course, that it was made by one of the prisoners. It's a sculpted head of a boy, which, as Legatti writes it, radiates an extraordinary and intense beauty. Yet despite this beauty, Dr. Monk is horrified, for this is the head of John Doe's last victim, his most recent frolic.
0: Yeah, it's a chilling moment in the story. It's a great way to reveal the biases and beliefs of the characters. Um, I'll start with Leslie here, who saw this beautiful sculpture and wanted to support the work in the prison that is creative and is about making and not destructive and and people who are able to make such beauty, there must be some goodness in them, is I think the implication or inference of this section. But David says, uh, creativity isn't always an index of niceness. And so here you get a little bit of Leslie's uh, naivete towards the world. Her beliefs are very simple about people um, and going back a little bit, we get kind of the darkness of David's belief when he says he shouldn't waste his time trying to help someone like John Doe, who doesn't even live in the same world as we do, psychologically speaking. But he even goes a step further to say that all these people like this should just be killed. It's almost like a a psychological genocide he's advocating for. And this is meant, I think, to demonstrate the real darkness that comes with an overwhelming need to protect yourself from anything in the outside world that disrupts your worldview. And this is something I'm bringing up because it's, it's part of what I want to bring up in our discussion as well.
1: Well, and these types of observations I think, resonate with Leslie as well in this moment. And she realizes that her worldview, her conception of the relationship between goodness and, and beauty is is in fact being called into question by this work of art. And so now she has more questions about John Doe, and prompted by these questions, Dr. Monk launches into another, even longer narrative. John Doe told him about the murders he committed, but not in a sickeningly graphic way. Rather, he described his frolicking with a powerful sense of wonder and nostalgia, And Dr. Monk goes on to explain that John Doe doesn't have the egotistical magnificence that most psychopaths possess. Rather, in John Doe's delusions, he is merely a lazy demi demon from a neverland where dizzy chaos is the norm. And John Doe describes this neverland as a cosmos of crooked houses, a slum among the stars. It has a jolly river of refuse and jagged heaps in shadows. I love these phrases. These are beautiful, uh, amazing, weird fiction phrases.
0: I do too. I, this really just jumps out at me as a reader of weird fiction. This signals exactly what's going on in the
1: story and, and maybe to the nature of John Doe himself. Right. At at this point, anyone who's read a weird fiction story before, or really maybe any story before, knows that what Dr. Monk thinks are psychopathic delusions are most likely, in fact, true. That John Doe is some type of supernatural creature from another world.
0: Right. One thing that really jumps out at me in this section as David is holding forth about John Doe with Leslie. He's venting a little bit. He says this um, about being a psychologist and about the kind of work he has to do. But I think this line is really maybe the linchpin of the whole story. He says, sometimes you just have to keep some distance between yourself and reality, even if it means becoming a little less human. And to me, this is what David and Leslie have done in this story, and it speaks to the pseudo-religious language, the saintliness. Saints are also a little less human than humans. They're more like closer to angelic or or godly, but there is more of a different nature in them than human. But this is a very different kind of thing
1: we're looking at um, in David's recollection of events. Yeah, because I don't think that anyone who's lived in a society Uh, in which monks are prevalent would actually describe them as less human, or less than human, it would be described as more than human, that they're, they are, as you suggest, bridging that gap between humans and angels, which is to say, they're going up, they're being better. But here we are seeing that Dr. Monk is having to cut off his humanity, which I think here really means things like empathy, compassion, pity, in order to have a sort of security, or at least the, the illusion of security here for him and his family. Well, Dr. Monk concludes the account of his conversation with John Doe, and, and then he and Leslie talk more about their plans to leave Nolgate. Dr. Monk wants to leave right away. Tomorrow, in fact. But Leslie wants Norlene to be able to finish out the school year. And now Dr. Monk explains that John Doe has actually rattled him, that he's now worried about Norlene's safety. And of course, this shocks Leslie, and she demands an explanation. Dr. Monk says that he feels like John Doe has been playing with him, and while that's not unusual for psychopathic patients, John Doe said something that made the doctor think that he might actually know Norlene's name. There's an exchange here between Dr. Monk and his wife about what exactly John Doe said, and they both seem to conclude that it was a harmless remark, and not really or not necessarily evidence that John Doe possesses knowledge about Dr. Monk's family that he shouldn't.
0: Yeah, I'll say that this is kind of the one section of the story that fell a little flat for me, is this. This is a little bit too on the nose, a little bit too much of a linguistic game. There's a lot of language games in this story, but this one just feels like a stretch uh, to name your daughter Norlene, so you can perhaps get this attempt at a pun out of it. Um, That said, that's pretty frightening. Um, It shows the depth to which John Doe has reached into David's mind, and, and we see that David is the emissary of that world now into his own home, that this boundary is being violated by David himself.
1: Yeah, I didn't really enjoy this part of the story as well, this grammatical trickery, this use of the pun. It just was pretty unartful, but it also just didn't seem convincing for me. I think you, you said it was on the nose, but for me, it seemed like it only actually made sense if we got a lengthy explanation of it. I almost would have liked it to have been maybe more on the nose and left unexplained, left left for the reader to observe without requiring the narrator to draw the connections for us. But maybe that's something we can we can table f- until the discussion and we'll, we'll get on with the story here. Sounds great. Well, at this point, Dr. Monk is relieved that he and his wife have both convinced each other that this all amounts to nothing, and so now Doctor Monk says that when he checked on Norline earlier, he felt vulnerable, and and that's really driving his emotional state right now. And while he's talking about having gone up to check on Norleen after he heard that noise, he mentions the stuffed Bambi that he saw Norleen hugging, and Leslie says that Norline doesn't have a stuffed Bambi. At this point, Doctor Monk freezes. He knows at an almost instinctive level, that something is wrong with this situation. And in this state of heightened senses, he becomes aware of a draft in the house. And Leslie feels it too. Dr. Monk hurries upstairs to Norlene's room, his mind, his subconscious already aware of what he is going to find. The bedroom window is open and Norlene is gone. On the bed is the Bambi, its stuffing ripped out and replaced with a crumpled piece of paper. It's a note from John Doe. And the note says this. Dr. Monk, and here we should note that it is spelled M-O-N-K, that John Doe has misheard the doctor's name. Dr. Monk, we leave this behind in your capable hands, for in the black foaming gutters and back alley of paradise, in the dank windowless gloom of some intergalactic cellar, In the hollow, pearly whorls found in sewer-like seas, in starless cities of insanity, and in their slums, my awestruck little dear and I have gone frolicking. See you, anon. And the story ends with this line. Then the beautiful house was no longer quiet, for there rang a bright, freezing scream of laughter, the perfect sound to accompany a passing anecdote of some obscure hell
0: yeah I love the way this story ends. I love the letter from John Doe, who and he signs it Jonathan Doe, and I think you know the insistence of Dr. Monk seeing the Bambi over and over again. it could just as easily be a doe, and this is just a calling card. It's a beautiful bit of language play. It's a wonderful bit of imagery. You know, as far as I know, most stuffed animals don't come with genitalia. And it's, so it's Monk, Dr. Monk's own misreading of the situation that leads to this. His own sort of um, maybe not ambivalence, but something like ambivalence to his daughter's safety of bringing her to this place to do some. A saintly task to per- maybe perform some miracles of mental health in the prison so that he and his wife will be rewarded in some material way I think that 's all in the subtext of this story i think it's i think it 's all there pretty clearly as well. There are just maybe two things I want to point out uh, briefly one of the reasons why they feel so offended by the draft in the house apart from in the story it representing the the porousness of the boundary that they live in that they've created for themselves they also live in a home that is better than being drafty and that is clear they they believe they are above the home having a draft uh, this is what Ligotti writes that, that's in kind of doctor monk's mind theirs was not the kind of place to be drafty, not a broken down hole in the wall hovel where the wind gets in through ancient attic boards and warped window frames. And so that's kind of like your sense, the the clearer sense of the story that where they live is meant to be a safe haven. The the beautiful home, the beautiful yard, the beautiful town are stand-ins for safety in this story in a very clear way, but kind of through this language. And, and the last thing I want to say before we get into the discussion is this. David responds to Les- Leslie when she asks him what's wrong when he gets this instinct. He says, it's as if I know something and I don't know it at the same time. This is another linchpin sentence that actually describes the reality that these people are living in. They know and they don't know or don't want to know the full reality of the world they live in. And I think with that, we can move into the discussion.
1: All right, let's do it.
0: Well, the first thing I want to talk about, Glenn, is something I think we've really covered in this story. But I want us to imagine that we came across this in a non-genre magazine, and we didn't know who Tom Ligotti was, as many of his readers did not when he first came on the scene. And just pretend that we don't know that this is in a weird fiction collection, And so I want to ask you the question, uh, given that context, would you think that John Doe is merely a psychopath? Or would you have him be instead some manifestation of of some corner of an evil universe of some kind? Does this story work on the level of the weird without knowing that it's a weird fiction story?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think the answer is that I would just think that this person is a psychopath. I think that you have to be familiar with the tropes and conventions of the genre of weird fiction to understand that we are being clued into the fact that John Doe here is is some kind of supernatural creature. He is something akin to The King in Yellow, or he is something akin to Near Lathotep, uh, from Chambers and Lovecraft. When we get here through the sort of overtly Lovecraftian, overblown almost Lovecraftian language that Ligotti adopts here when he says things like cosmos of crooked houses or slum among the stars and things in the letter like the dank windowless gloom of some intergalactic cellar, in particular, it's this cosmic language that clues us in the to the fact that this is a cosmic horror story. But I can imagine this just showing up in, some, in the Saturday Evening Post or something. I don't even know if that was still around in 1985, but whatever the equivalent of that <laughs> right. was in 1985. And someone like Dr. Monk or someone like Leslie Monk just reading this story after a uncomfortably quiet family dinner and not having that language, not ever having read a Lovecraft story or a Chambers story or perhaps even a Poe story before. And so just seeing this as a Straight non-genre story about uh, a psychopathic child murderer who escapes from prison and goes after the child of his psychiatrist. I think the story really works in that way that it can be read from each of these genre directions.
0: I agree with that. I think it does work on both levels. I wonder though if the story really works well on the level of theme and metaphor without the cosmic horror background. For me, it, it just doesn't quite I, and I don't think the story is diminished by that because it is a genre story I mean you and I are living in a golden age of <laughs> um, the resurgence of weird fiction um, where you can get a like vinyl doll of Lovecraft at Barnes and Noble if if you want one he, that that's recent I think when the story was published in the, in the 1980s there's not a lot of context for this and, and 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 weird fiction the resurgence of weird fiction is a is a relatively recent phenomenon. And I think, yeah, the story is meant to work on both levels, because there wasn't a lot of places where this would be published otherwise.
1: Right. Well, I think that someone without the familiarity with weird fiction, who's reading this story in 1985, is going to read this story and immediately think of the 1979 film, When a Stranger Calls. This is that classic movie that's directed by Fred Walton, that is about a young teenage babysitter who... Is in this very nice affluent suburban home, babysitting some kids, and she keeps getting phone calls from a creepy sounding person who says, Have you checked on the children? or You know, you should go check on the children. And she's really creeped out. She calls the police, and of course, eventually, two things happen one, she goes to check on the children and discovers they've all been murdered, and two, the calls are coming from inside the house.
0: Inside the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the greatest, uh, maybe the greatest reveal of all time in, in American cinema.
1: It is, and I think that I saw this movie probably right around 1985, and the image of that has stuck with me. It's actually not until I recently rewatched that film that I discovered that's not actually the end of the movie. That's the end of Act One. Most of the movie is actually, like, <laughs> right. two other stories. Uh, but, but, but even reading this story called that to, to mind, because it is about a psychopath getting in your home and And jeopardizing or really killing your child, right? And feeling unsafe as a result of that. And I do think that that's the reaction that someone unfamiliar with the genre would have would think that, ah, yeah, this is just another story that's, you know, affirming something already new, which is that murderous psychopaths aren't good people we should have in our home, and we should erect uh, institutions to keep them separated from us.
0: We're going to come back uh, to the kind of horror movement About the scary psychopath invading the suburbs, or the safety issues, or or the belief of safety that living in an enclave might entail, or the motivations behind building such a place uh, in in just a moment. But I do want to ask you one more question about weird fiction and Tom Sligati. And I just want to know what your thoughts are about the direction that Tom Sligati is trying to move Cosmic Horror in. For instance, we have in Lovecraft, characters who discover some ancient knowledge or are on the wrong side of the town that has cults in it, or something where they are taking part in some discovery that gives them knowledge they don't want to have. That is in this story. But I think more is at play here. And I just want to know your thoughts on that, Glenn.
1: You have a couple of things to say about what is novel here for weird fiction. One thing that's really apparent here is that we are getting really kind of for the first time, the intrusion of weird fiction into the affluent American suburban home, into the family. And this is happening in a few different ways here. For one, I think as you're sort of pointing out, Brandon, Lovecraftian figures are bachelors, and they're bachelors who are have interesting professions, intellectual or academic professions, that will have them searching for knowledge. And in the figure of Dr. Monk here, we do have someone who is in a profession that could put him into a situation to be dealing with weirdness. But what's different here is that he has a family. He has a wife and he has a daughter. And we get in this story images of him in the physical place, the location where he interacts with weirdness or interacts with psychopathy. But none of our story directly takes place there. The story is 100% contained within this not-a-hovel affluent suburban house. This couldn't possibly be drafty suburban house. That's a pretty significant move for the literary movement of weird fiction. But I do want to say that that I think seeing that as an important move kind of ignores actually some of the weird fiction tradition that we get with Arthur Machen, who most famous stories are like those Lovecraft stories that you invoked in the question, Brandon, but has a lot of minor stories that actually are about affluent Englishmen or Welshmen perhaps living at home with their wives and having weird things intrude into their into their homes there. But I don't think people read those stories anymore. You have to really do a deep dive to get to those stories. So I don't know if Ligotti knew those stories or not. But in either case, this movement into the, the affluent sort of Reagan era American suburbs, I think is really significant.
0: I agree. And, and your answer really transitions nicely into what I want to talk about next, which is where this story is placed, at least in my mind, within the tradition of At least American fiction, at least going back as far as 1962 or so, you you begin to get stories about the American suburbs, the affluent American suburbs, and the kinds of what we call today first world problems that plague them. Um, I'm saying 1962 because I'm thinking of Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, which really kicked this off. But I'm also thinking about John Updike's novels, The Rabbit Series, um, and Raymond Carver's short stories, like what we talk about when we talk about love, the most paradise title of all time. And I think in the 70s and 80s, where you get the John Updike and Raymond Carver really writing... These are writers who are trying to describe the angst of affluence in a way that really connects with a lot of readers at the time. That it's not so easy being rich and white and having a good job and living in a nice home. And I actually don't want to diminish or poke fun too much at that angst, because this is how we get the profession of psychology and psychiatry. This is how we get pharmaceutical lobbyism. These are real problems that actually plague and influence American culture. But out of those writings, I think, and and the writers' attitudes toward these problems, you have a whole movement in horror that's taking place at the same time. Movies like Halloween that come out in 1979, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, at least the opening scene of that movie, where you have um, this beautiful suburban home and violence and chaos and nature are look, lurking just beneath the surface. You have the, the, the man watering his lawn outside, but the, the wife inside is watching a, a movie that features uh, violent action with a gun. And then the man dies. And if you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. The, the camera pans to the chaos of the natural world taking place in the lawn with insects. It's wonderful imagery. And maybe most importantly, the one that is called to mind most for me is the movie The Exorcist, which is really about the impossibility of keeping evil away, no matter how affluent or how much of an enclave you live in. Um, And then you get movies like The Burbs, which are meant to question the motivations of people who want to live in these communities. To me, this story fits very nicely within that tradition. It could be a Raymond Carver story. I think in our Introduction Jeff Vandermeer um, compares it more to Blue Velvet, to the Lynchian movie. To me, this feels more like the kind of couple you'd get in Updike or Carver. And to me, that's why this story works so well. It is part of a horror movement I have a particular affinity for, which is to demonstrate the kind of rot that exists in these hastily built suburbs that were the product of uh, a vicious, vicious. War in the nineteen
1: forties. Well, placing placing the monks into that oeuvre, that genre, this tradition of exploring the sort of hollowness—I think "rot" is the word that you used—of affluent suburban America following World War II. It's interesting to note that Doctor Monk, David Monk, wants to move away from that. He's actually decided that there's not any real merit, any real benefit to treating the urban neuroses of that class of people. And in fact, he decides that he wants to take his skills, his expertise to help people who are downtrodden. I mean, the name monk is intentional. Of course, we've pointed out several times, but he really is doing something Christ-like here in turning his back on what presumably was a pretty affluent job a well paid position treating patients in some affluent part of the country to move to this prison town and treat psychopaths as a state employee who presumably is not paid very well it's like something akin to like what a high school principal in a rural area might make or something like that and i think what's interesting here is that that impulse that that drive to perhaps have thought about Raymond Carver's stories, and said, "Yes, you know what? There is something hollow about this pursuit of wealth. I want to go do something good and give back to society. That decision is actually his undoing. The undoing of of him, his family, his daughter's life results from that. And I can't. And while I can't believe that Ligotti is suggesting that actually the best choice we could all make is to just pursue greed and is just to pursue wealth as greedily uh, and un." empathetically as possible, because having empathy for others is what leads to ruin. I would think that what Legati is trying to show here is that it's too late.
0: Interesting. So I read this as Dr. Monk and his family being perhaps um, l- low-paid people in a wealthy area, the urban neuroses of maybe the city's elite that he's treating. um that is a part of this post-war ennui that really takes place two or three generations after World War II. He decides in a way, much like, um, I don't know, people who are fans of like the book, The Secret, that all he has to do is do good and the universe will repay him. He's not doing good. Maybe he doesn't feel like he's getting what he needs, which is affirmation and status. And here, he's the top man in town. He's Maybe among the more well paid. He lives in the affluent part of town. And so he's actually doing something that's really selfish by moving to this and and covering it with the calling it a saintly mission. But I think his attitude is revealed as being very self-centered when he's not getting the status and the affirmation he wants from the people that he's helping. When they're not saying thank you, instead they're spitting on him. And he says many times he describes where they live as a pandemonium, which is Milton's word for the place where all the demons live. He uh, describes it as a hellhole. And he basically says they should all just be killed because they don't belong in my world. And I think that this story is meant to demonstrate that these people live in in a way that violently keeps out
1: anything that challenges
0: their worldview, and that they're creating their own misery as a result.
1: Right. I guess that's what I meant by it's too late. It's that Dr. Monk is too acculturated into this society of affluence that even when he hears the message of Raymond Carver, or perhaps hears the message of Christ to cast off your wealth and go do good works among the poor, really perhaps trying to be something of a St. Francis figure, he's unable to do it, that he finds that when he goes into that society, this prison, what might be a leper colony, if we're thinking in, in biblical terms, he can't muster the empathy for them. They disgust him because the affluence that he's coming from has already rotted him from the inside. that That's what I mean by it's too late.
0: I think that's absolutely right on. I think that is really what's happening in this story is that this is demonstrating a kind of cultural rot. And I think we'd do well to kind of listen to these great horror movies from the 70s and 80s that ask us to be suspicious of our motivations that are meant to keep suffering and problems of the poor outside of our door, to keep them away, to build gated communities. These are some of my favorite kinds of stories that come out of the horror genre uh, because they're a real warning to the instinct to gain status within the current system that isolates you and I think part of the setting of this story is that those they're iso- the, the monks are isolated they are entirely isolated and as a result they have no feedback either from each other they support one another in their decisions they're perfectly pretty supportive couple of one another. They are never giving each other real pushback. Um, They don't get pushback from their neighbors. And the worst of them are spitting on them, and they deserve better. And it's just, I don't know, this story just fits well into what is one of my favorite bits of
1: American horror fiction something that this conversation has made me think about, Brandon, that I didn't think about while I was reading it, is this parallel with the affluence of the United States following the Second World War, and the affluence of the United Kingdom in the Edwardian period, Following really the sort of perfection of industrialization, that is the context in which Machen is writing his weird fiction stories in the Edwardian British equivalent of affluent American suburbs, and I'm really looking forward to comparing this Legati story to one of those Machen stories when we get there, and you know might be five years from now, but it will get there eventually, and I'll really look forward to actually doing a sort of cultural comparison with how these two writers are dealing with. The spiritual bankruptcy of so much affluence in their societies, and writing about it through the vehicle of weird fiction.
0: That sounds like an awesome project, and I can't wait until we have an opportunity to do that. I do suspect, though, that uh, we'll find a lot Legati to be far more cynical and pessimistic than than Maken. But I think for now, Glenn, that's going to do it for this episode.
1: I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us
0: know what you thought of the frolic. I- I'd love to hear what our listeners think about this story's place in um, the fiction of the 70s and 80s, or even in the tradition of weird fiction, Glenn, as you suggest, going as far back to Arthur Machen.
1: Well, next time we'll be going back to even a little earlier than Arthur Machen. We'll be reading Lost Heart's by mr james until then we greet you and say farewell